Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you don't already subscribe, please do so. If you do subscribe... Why don't you go on iTunes and leave us a rather nice review? It is apparently of vital importance you do this, and I've got this on good authority that these things make a huge difference to our podcast ranking and all the rest of it, and us being able to get more great guests who know about their rugby. Talking of great guests that know about their rugby, today I am with Garant Powell of the Viet Gwent blog. Now, I've come across a lot of bloggers due to egg chasers being on Twitter and all the rest of it, and a lot of them are very good. Garant is exceptional. After doing this interview, I can tell you right now, it is the most in-depth and he is the most knowledgeable person about rugby, particularly Welsh rugby, I think I've, I've ever met. So, if you're into Welsh rugby, this is perfectly for you. If you're not into Welsh rugby, well, I suggest you listen because you might just learn something. Before we get into all of that good stuff, including how the regions are interacting with the WRU and what their future prospects are and how they've got it so horribly wrong, yet in one case, particularly right... Why don't we give a quick word to our sponsor, Field & Flower. Field & Flower are the providers of fine grass-fed meat delivered direct to your door. Go on their website, look at their um, site, it's Field & Flower. Just choose a box which is suitable for you, the poultry box, the barbecue box, seasonal box. They've got all sorts there. Or you can make it your own box using a selection of 170 cuts of meat or fish. The point is, you go there and you use our code, Rugby20, you get a discount. They've supported us, you've supported them, and they are vital to everything that we do in the Rugby Dungeon. Furthermore, if you sign up this month, we'll put you into a draw, and you can win some rather nice stash. That'll be announced towards the end of the month. So, Field and Flower, our code, Rugby20, and then you can enjoy your delicious box of freshly delivered meat. Now, over to me and Garrett Powell from the Viet Gwent blog. I hope you enjoy it. Now, in a bit of a departure from our normal guests, we have Garant Powell here from, let me get this right, the Viet Gwent blog. Is that correct? Yes, that's the name of the um, the blog I use. As you may realise, it's what um, the old Max Boyce used to refer to in one of his songs as the old um, Pontypool front row and various others of Charlie Faulkner, Bobby Windsor and Graham Price. And everybody these days on Twitter seems to have a, a handle other than their name. Ah, I see. OK, uh, and so we can take from that that you are a Pontypool fan. Can you just tell us a bit about the Viet Squint blog and the stuff you get up to? Well, obviously, I've been a lifelong um, Pontypool fan. In the 
80s it was fantastic being um a pontypool fan other than their usual sort of cup mishaps <laughs> where you know they were taking on the best teams in britain and more often than not beating them Ninth, they failed really to keep ahead of the game when they were on top the 1990s saw a decline with rule changes as more money came into the game they were relegated the season before the season before the, the game went open professional, which is probably the worst time ever for the major club to get relegated. And then since then, um, there's been some hard times, including the, the litigation with WRU a few years ago over their relegation. But mm. they're on the rise again now under um, Peter and Ben Jeffries, who've um, sorted things out there. But the ring fence back to the Premiership came as a season too early in their development. But obviously, the next couple of years, we're looking for some good um, championship results. Yeah, that's interesting you say that, because I'm a follower of RGC. And I think it was the last day of the season that the decision was made uh, that obviously RGC went up. And of the five teams, now, for those of you that listen to this podcast, it's usually an English audience. But the end of last season, the Welsh Championship, which is one below the Premiership, there were five teams going up, or sorry, four teams going up. After that, the league would be ring-fenced for three years. If you were the la- if you were fifth, you would stay down and stay there for three years. Is that right? Correct. That's pretty much it. Well, it would be more than three years because the ring fence is for three years. It's the season after that that the you can go for relegation again. So effectively, if you weren't promoted in 2016, you couldn't be promoted under current plans until um, 2020. And there were five teams... That, with the lowest was about 40 points clear of the team in sixth place. So, uh, unfortunately, it went down to the wire, um, but Pontypool were the team um, that got uh, that got left behind. So the, their role now really is to um, do very much when a similar thing happened to Ebbo Vale a few years ago, is to so dominate the championship that there's no real arguments in favour of maintaining the ring fence after this period. Yeah, Ebuvale were dominant. Was it last season or the year before? I mean, I feel was... they dominated the championship. And last season, I went to the Premiership final at Sardis Road, mm. and they completely won the Premiership, which is the highest tier of the of the club game um, in Wales before you reach um, the regions. So let's put the regions to one side for a moment, because I've got some very strong views on the regions and the way the way they are going. How do you view the health of the club game in Wales at the moment? It's not in a good state. We've got a new WRU um, hierarchy um, with more um, empathy for the club game than there has been um, for some time in um, Gareth Davis, um, the new chairman. Well, the new chairman, he's been in post over a year now. Mm -hmm. And also um, Martin Phillips, the new chief executive. So we have guys there who are rugby men and want to um, try and get the club game going again. Um, This is not intended as a criticism of the previous chief executive, but obviously his focus was very much on the financial model and Team Wales, mm-hmm. and I think even his greatest supporters wouldn't claim that uh, Roger Lewis had a particular empathy for the for the semi-pro and community club game. Yeah, so you don't agree with the Lewis model of building up the Welsh team and hopefully everything else will trickle down from there? Um, it's, a, it's a difficult model, and um, like all small countries, um, 
you know, the, the money is in the um, the international game. So you have to do you have to do that. Where I think things went wrong is it didn't really trickle down um, because it's a very disjointed WRU pyramid. And I think for various reasons, the focus became almost exclusively on generating the income in the test game. The mm. WRU and the, kind of looked at the region and said, well, they're separate, so we can't really do much there, and neglected what was below. And then what, what I like about the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, South Africa model is, I think the more involved in all levels of the game a union is, it's yeah. generally a better union rather than the light-touch step back, we'll deal with test rugby and fund the club game but we're not really interested or involved in the other side of the club game i think what new zealand south africa australia do well is kind of the integrated totality of the entire system okay well with that in mind could you just give us an outline of how the welsh game is organized then right is this i believe this um is will be mainly for english um listeners yes yes predominantly english listeners but actually you know i've grown up my whole life watching wales Living in Wales, I support RGC, and if someone said, how is the Welsh game organised, I couldn't tell you. Right, well, the Welsh game is a sort of, the global game is pretty much divided between two separate models. You have the South Africa, New Zealand, Australia model where it's all integrated, it's all run by the union, and then you have sort of the English-French model where the union runs the test team, it runs the community game, and in between the club game is very much professional um two divisions the fever premiership the championship but it's you know, run by separate businesses wales is a complicated mixture of both business models which i'm sure we'll come on to during the course of this interview but mm-hmm. you have wales at the top you have no um wales a the equivalent of the english saxons because that was they were culled about in 2003 as part of cost-cutting measures. You have these four regions which are essentially standalone or amalgamated former big clubs or super clubs, um, as we call them. Yeah. Then you have the Premiership, which is a semi-pro game, which your team, RGC 1404, has just got promoted into, which is the top tier of the semi-pro club game. I think 16 clubs this season. Then you have the championship below it, which has got kind of semi-pro, but, you know, um, 12 teams. And then below that, you have the rest of the pyramid of community clubs, which is supposed to be amateur. Um, but obviously, you know, brown envelopes get passed around, etc. Yes. some places. There's no way a union can prevent that without being given to a police MI5 pass. <laughs> so uh, just to be clear then, Outside of the Premiership and the Championship, is there no professionalism allowed? Or is it at the discretion of the organisations themselves in the clubs? I think the, posi- the formal position is there shouldn't be. And you have to sign a contract with the WRU saying you won't pay if you want to receive their funding. Um, it's going back to the days of Graham Henry when he was Welsh coach. There was very much a horror when New Zealand coaches came into Wales, whether it was Graham Henry or current All Blacks coach was his Welsh successor, Steve Hansen, and Welsh game administrators like New Zealand and David Moffat, they would come in and be absolutely horrified at these small, tiny community clubs in the valleys where, you know, 
paying players £15-£20 a game. There simply isn't the money in the Welsh game for that. And, you know, one of the things trying to do is try and concentrate it in the any payments into the premiership level where the, you may find the occasional player who can make the grade up to the fully professional regions. I see, right. Because I do remember there being a situation where Wales had, I think, the most professional players of any country in the world. But you'd have a guy who was playing tight head for, say, Bangor on retainer for Cardiff Blues as their fifth choice yeah. prop or something. Mm-hmm. And it would be ludicrous. Initially, it was it was absolutely absurd. I mean, sort of the, the initial mentality towards professionalism in Wales was, um, we'll do what we've always done, um, but we want payment for it. And the, that, that was a wide set mindset. And once one or two clubs are paying, um, if the teams that want to beat them in their league want to compete, they get forced. Um, they get forced down that avenue. But as you can say, the WU tried to stamp it out. It was madness. Teams were going under, clubs were going under, um, but as I said, you know, if a benefactor wants to give money to his local club, um, he'll get away with it. I mean, and the reality is, mo- most payments will not go through the club books. It'll be a benefactor paying a player directly. Yeah. So unless you've got a whistleblower going to the WRU with evidence, um, the union is never really going to get on top of this. Hmm. With all the best word in the world. You've just got to change the mindset that people don't want to do that and to think much long-term about sustainability. And I guess it's always happened in the, some form or another, whether it be the offer of employment or whatever else it may be. But, but, um, I'm sure it happens at the, at the very, you know, a very elite game. If, if you have a salary cap at the professional level, you know, it's, certain teams will offer, you know, pre, pre-season training um, preceding training weeks in New York or something you know it's it's every part of the game but uh, you know you, you can do what you can but if, if if there's a will there's a way under this structure we've got at the moment which is this mix between the southern hemisphere kind of centralization and then independent organizations running the club game or shall I say the professional level of the game professional regions yeah who do you think's benefited from this so far <laughs> i i think the honest answer is nobody Okay, the you know, when, when the game went professional in nineteen ninety five, and Wales had about ten, eight, ten, twelve. It was slowly being contracted between nineteen ninety five and two thousand and three. The clubs were reducing. The people who came in and invested these clubs were absolutely hemorrhaging money. So. 1995-2003, which was kind of copying the English-French system without the money, <laughs> that became clear it wasn't going to work. They had to cull the teams. I think Wales benefited from the teams being culled in the sense that you could concentrate the players and finance into five businesses, then to four businesses after the Celtic Warriors folded. So at least you have the money and the resources, the players, funneled into four teams. But the question then became, are these um, um, the right four teams? And anybody who's ever discussed Welsh rugby politics on Twitter will know what a hot topic um, that is. Yeah, I've given up on that. I mean, I tweet about <laughs> politics all the time, and it's it's actually easier arguing Conservative v Labour or vice versa yeah. than it is about well, that's, Welsh that's, politics. That's, that's for novices. Welsh rugby is for the serious, difficult stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right there. And you know, being a North Walian, I've got to say, my views on the WRU have softened purely because they've finally given us some backing 
and they've given us a team. But prior to that, I don't think I had any time for the WRU. I've never had much time for the Regents, uh, although I have sporadically sort of so kind of supported them in in stages but ultimately if you're north Walian, you probably look towards sale before you look to the wru and the regions simply for the mm-hmm. fact of the of the complete think, neglect that they've shown north wales until relatively recently well i mean you know i think i think, I think the joke was if you were a north wales fan did you drive to sale or did you get the ferry to dublin i think you know yeah absolutely <laughs> Very few people were going to drive to Connectly as their home region or even, you know, get on a train at Colwyn Bay and go to Rodney Parade. I mean, you know, you're talking five, six hour drives um, for each. Because what's interesting is when David Moffat came to the WRU, within the first week of his being in place in the WRU CEO, Chief Executive in December 2002, he'd essentially adopted the plan by the WRU director of rugby, Terry Cobner, and national coach, Steve Hansen, who's a current All Blacks coach, mm. where it was four regions, essentially a region in, um, being based in Connectly, a region based in Cardiff, a region based in Newport, plus a fourth region based at the race course um, in Wrexham. And all the vested interest in the South Wales professional game threw up their hands at horror at the thought of, one, they're they're being condensed into three teams, and fourthly, um, you know, a development region and players being shipped off to um, Wrexham. So I think North Wales came across South Wales at its most villagist parochial. Um, There was no long-term thought thinking, well, three teams can cover the, um, the rugby population of South Wales as long as you get the branding right. And the fourth team is just on virgin territory, developing more fans and money. But Wales just does not think strategically like that. So it was about another five, six years before the RGC 1404 project, much further down the pyramid, um, kind of came to fruition and got off the ground. Mm. So what do you think David Moffat's original vision was? And how successful do you think he was in establishing um, a result as, as closely aligned to the original vision as possible. Well, I was actually discussing this with David Moffat on Twitter um, the other night because obviously he gets a very bad press over mm. the way the super clubs um, failed to evolve. But, you know, he had a very difficult hand. He came at the WRU where, you know, it was almost insolvent. The debt from rebuilding the stadium was crippling it. Um, he had all these contracts with professional clubs guaranteeing them um, top table, um, you know, dining you know, at the very top level of the Welsh game. And he had a minefield to navigate. Um, and, you know, he wanted these four regions, essentially a north region in Wrexham, a west region in Clenechley, a south region in Cardiff and a, an east region in Newport. There were all these deadlines, you know, about... You've got to tell us what teams you're fielding next season. You probably have the WIU's bankers, Barclays, all over him for the debt level. And what he basically had to try and do was make the best of a bad job with Clinically having issued writs against him in the High Court in London. And eventually, you know, he, he settled on these five essentially super clubs, but he had to sell them as regions to get them past the WIU membership. 
One of them, the Celtic Warriors, folded within a year. Everybody said five was one too many. So everybody spent that first season thinking which one's going to crack. And eventually we ended up with um, uh, at Scarlet, which was very much Connectly. Yep. A Blues, which is very much Cardiff. A Dragons, which was essentially um, Newport. And the only one that's really evolved at all was the, the Neef Swansea um, amalgamation, which slowly, you know, um, developed into this Australia. And surprise, surprise, that's become the, you know, the one that evolved the most is the one that became the strongest Welsh region most seasons. Why do you attribute so much success to Australia, as you call it, and Neef Swansea Ospreys? In fact, I don't even think they're called Neef Swansea anymore, they're just called Ospreys. It's been many, many years since everybody recorded them as um, Neef Swansea. And um, what what I find, I find amazing is the Ospreys is, one, they embraced a new culture, a new identity. So people who weren't necessarily a fanatical Swansea or a Neef fan um, weren't particularly antagonised towards them naturally. Um, on the merchandising front, they have, must have made an absolute fortune because I mean the Ospreys replica jerseys you see more of them around than Blues, Dragons and um, Scarlets yep. combined I, and lots of people particularly in sort of East Glamorgan the Blues region and Gwent the Dragons region took, an, they took an, a, kind of a, a slight affinity towards the Ospreys because they represented what their own region had rejected. They were trying to move forward. They were trying to evolve. You know, I mean, if you go to the Blues, you go to Cardiff RFC, it's club governance. You know, I mean, I don't quite know what the Blues is supposed to add because, you know, it's not just a Cardiff brand is toxic. You know, Ponte, a lot of Pontypris fans define themselves by their opposition to their region. You know, I'll never be a blue. <laughs> is that right? Oh, yes. No, I mean, I think there's a comment a few years ago where the, the Leinster chief executive, Mick Dawson, was over from Dublin for the, the Leinster A-team um, British and Irish Cup game against the Blues and I think he gave a controversial interview to the um, the Western Mail Wales Online where he said you know these fans are six seven miles from Cardiff they're supposed to be you know the thousand of fans you'd want involved in regional rugby and he said I don't think these guys would care if the Blues were in the Heineken Cup final today. That's really you know I've never thought of it in those in those terms I've always um, laughed at Ospreys because I think their kits are horrendous <laughs> and I look at I look across the way and I look at Newport. I actually think Newport have got it wrong. I think they are trying to do what Ospreys have done, which is get away from the old Newport club. And actually, yes. I think that's the opposite to what they want to do because they, they end up in these horrible blue jerseys away from their heritage. But from what you say, actually, it would have been more successful if Cardiff and a another club combined to be Cardiff something something or others, with a brand new identity yeah. and follow the Ospreys route. Well, the best way of looking at this is if you look at New Zealand, where they had 27 historic provinces, and anybody who says, well, you know, there wasn't much rivalry or grudgery in New Zealand rugby doesn't know New Zealand rugby at all. Manawatu v Wellington or Taranaki versus Wellington was anything as, was anything as you know, as, as brutal as Cardiff v Bridgend or Cardiff v Pontypridd. Yeah. But, you know, you know, you've got two options when you go regionalism. You've either got to go for a new point of um, identity 
or you've got to convert somebody's club allegiance. And mm. people will tend to buy into a fresh project rather than be told you've got to support the club that's been your biggest rival since before your grandfather was born. Yeah. And that's, 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 that's been the issue. The, the Australia thing is a representative thing. Rather than saying we're New Swansea or the Ospreys Club, they're marking out their region and saying, this is our region. We're not in competition with the clubs in our region because we represent them. We're for the professional game. Everybody, everything else continues on at semi-pro or at community level. As you see with North Wales, the RGC 1404 is very much a regional club. It's not designed to offend any pre-existing club. Yeah. It's something that's been built above them to work together with them. Yeah, although I can tell you this uh, about the RGC experiment. Even though the North Wales clubs have done nothing historically, and you could put that down to indifference from South Wales and the WRU not supporting. But you know, let, let's face it, there's never really been a famous North Wales club which could even hold a candle to South Wales clubs. Yeah. There was still resistance to sending the, uh, sending our players to RGC. And for the first few years, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and light because they were playing below the championship and everyone just assumed that they'd written off the North Wales club game. So it's only recently that it's, it's all been relatively embraced. Well, it, it, it was always a difficult project because you had this 2002 plan, put a professional region in Wrexham, grow North Wales from the top down. Um, that got rejected by vested interests in South Wales. So the RGC 1404 project was something that had to be done very slowly from the bottom up because if it was too blatant... In South Wales, some of the professional clubs would say, well, hang on a moment, professional regions, hang on a moment. There's only enough money in, in Wales at most for four teams. Which, which of us is that project um, going to replace? And if you're from Clinically or Newport, I can see the long-term concerns because if you're running a business in Wales, if you get the branding right, three in the south and one in the north will be how you would run the how you would run the professional game, maybe North Wales as some sort of Connaught development project. Mm. So you started lower down the pyramid. I mean, obviously I'm not as familiar with the RGC history as you will be, but my understanding is they, they initially went into Division 1 East. That's correct. Essentially a pile of South Wales um, pit villages. Yeah. So obviously that was not ideal because those sort of teams in South Wales would see this you know, very much project team being seen to be giving preference and passing through. Because the people in South Wales don't appreciate it. It's not immediately in their faces just how much travelling time these North Wales rugby players are doing. Because, as anybody can tell you, a drive from North to South <laughs> Wales is not great because almost every road in Wales runs east-west. Yes, that's absolutely right. So, and these players sometimes, you know, it's not just getting from Colwyn Bay to, you know, Penachter or Bedlinog or Astrid Ronver or whatever the teams were. A lot of these players have got to spend some time on a Monday morning, even getting as far as uh, um, Colwyn Bay before they jump on their coach. Yeah, well, and also the other factor in this is if you wanted to build a lot of envy, you would probably invite some of these South Wales pit town teams up to Arius Park, where there's a running track, there's the Welsh weightlifting section, there's there's all this stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous that they started off so low, quite frankly. 
Because well, as he said, it was it was a back it was a backdoor project. It, yeah. it should have been done front door two thousand and two. You know, two million people in South Wales, that gives you three teams. A million people in mid North Wales, probably six hundred thousand within the, the reasonable catchment area. Develop there, develop as a pro team from the outset, something like what the Irish Union did with Connaught. Yeah. Slowly build from that position. But obviously, because of the politics, it was started much lower down um, the tier. And, of course, everybody's then complaining of envy and preference. So it's, you know, in a sense, it antagonises both sides. You've got North Walians saying, well, actually, we've been neglected for over a century. It's about time we had some money spent on us. And South Wales, you know, pit villages have you know, lost their main source of employment, you know, seeing this lovely coach drive in from North Wales. So it's the worst of all worlds. Exactly right. It got, it got to where we were at the premiership level, where, you know, RGC um, as a club, as a regional club should be, um, because obviously if, if, if RGC 1404 had come fifth, you know, my advice to Martin Phillips and Gareth Davis would have been, well, my advice to Jenny was promote all five. There's such a gap. But definitely then promote the five and just have one premiership team every Saturday having a bye like in Super Rugby and get those players down the veil when that's not being used by the Welsh team or the regions and, you know, plugging into WRU expertise there. But Wales is caught between this club sort of meritocracy and this New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, strategic thinking. And, you know, everything is uh, what some people call, you know, well, like one famous tweet that calls a hybrid fast, the entire <laughs> system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I suppose you can say this about the um, legacy of David Moffat, is the Welsh national team might not have had the best summer tour. They might not have had the best Six Nations, although they did, they, they did OK. But since he's been around, they have won three Grand Slams. They've been, they've gone from a historic embarrassment to a team which I, I'm, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite proud to call my own. And growing up, all those years until that first first Grand Slam, being a Wales fan was no fun whatsoever. Oh, well, most certainly not. I think you know, sort of, uh, you know, the the early 1990s in particular were absolutely horrendous. You know, I, I remember the gallows humours of well. Thank God we, it was only Western Samoa. We didn't play all of Samoa in exactly. the world. That was, that, that was the humour. So, you know, Wales, the WIU did not take control in 1995 like the Southern Hemisphere Unions did, contract players, set up a few provinces or regions or districts, whatever you want to call them. Benefactors came in. Um, they pumped a lot of money um, in, in fairness to some of them, but they were getting nothing, nothing back. There had to be a contraction to four teams. Um, it's just that, you know, we just, like Wales, we make life difficult for ourselves, and we're just always trying to preserve the past, or rather somebody's sectional past, whereas New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, they're just ruthless. You know, they don't care about the past. All they want to do is win next year. Mm. The past isn't helping them win next year. Um, it's jettisoned. So, you know, the 27 New Zealand provinces became five regions. The 14 South African provinces for Super Rugby are now six regions. You know, they're all artificial. It's just drawing lines on the map. But once you get people into a representative culture, it's amazing how they will embrace it. 
But you know, if you go to you know, they say say UEFA said right Lancashire, it will have one team representing um, English football in the Champions League from Lancashire every season. Um, what would you do? We'd build a nice one hundred and fifty thousand massive sort of Maracan ass type stadium. Now, if you branded a Lancashire team, you've got some hope. But if you say, well, actually, the Lancashire region is going to be called the Manchester Red Devils, well, they're <laughs> going to play at Old Trafford. Well, good luck at Anfield or Goodison Park or uh, the city of Manchester Stadium, the Etihad, trying to sell that. Yeah. It is nothing more difficult than asking somebody to change their historic club allegiance. Well, this regional rugby is, in, is interesting, as are franchises in Super Rugby. And where I'm going with this is I kind of feel now that the franchise system for Super Rugby has gone gone almost as far as it can get. And it's starting, it's starting to regress a bit. There's less crowds. The standard across the board has dropped. Uh, New Zealand teams are the exception. But it feels to me that the expansion uh, has actually ruined Super Rugby. Um, I would not disagree with you. Um, I think Super Rugby... I think Super Rugby was at its best when it was um, 12 teams, but obviously there are so many competing um, pressures on Sanzar, particularly with the financial revenues increasing in England, Japan, and particularly France, um, and players exiting. Um, so, you know, they've, Argentina have improved since they joined um, Super Rugby. Um, Although they joined the rugby championship, and so there was obvious a demand to put a Super Rugby franchise in Buenos Aires. Obviously, there's plenty of money uh, in Japan. New Zealand can just about do five regions, even with their um, player exoduses, if the other teams were to the same standard as them. The problems have been South Africa and um, Australia. Obviously, South Africa's got a very weak currency. There's all sort of racial pressures there. Mm. We also have um, other issues, um, such as you know, such as the the need in South Africa to placate NASPAs, the, their big broadcaster, because South Africa was traditionally fourteen provinces, yeah. but six there were six big provinces that dominated, and obviously each of those six provinces wanted their own um, region. So South Africa, fifteen years ago, probably had the manpower to man six regions when they had four provinces. Now they've got six regions, but they've got three hundred plus players playing rugby outside of South Africa. Australia, slightly different problems. They always had sort of Queensland and New South Wales was where the rugby was um, strongest. That's where all the heart, that was the heartland areas. They managed to grow a third franchise in the capital territory, the Brumbies, and that worked well. Where they've struggled as players like Ashley Cooper and Quade Cooper um, have gone overseas, sort of James Horwell, Matt Gitto, is they've got two additional teams, the Western Force in Perth, and then also the Melbourne sort of Rebel Super Club in, in Melbourne, possibly the strongest winter sports market on the planet. So yeah. never a great place to break in as a sort of virgin sport. It is a, it is a strange one, Matt. Uh, yeah. Now, you make a very good point about all the South African exodus. And we sort of saw this with Wales when the likes of Jamie Roberts, um, Phillips, Priestland's gone. There were quite a few boys that, were, boys that went over to France, some to England. 
With South Africa and Australia and everyone else, geography is a huge issue. You can't just put them back on planes, although they do, and then get them back, back for tests and training camps. With Wales, it isn't quite the same. And I actually think this player drain is of huge benefit to us. We've only got four regions. Uh, the regions themselves can only put, for instance, four fly halves out per week. And we've got a situation, actually, where on any given Saturday, there might be four Welsh fly halves starting in English shirts ahead of English players. That, to me, is the ideal situation. Oh, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, New Zealand is probably the nearest country to the the full regional package where every single player, a professional player at the five Super Rugby franchise regions is on a central contract. They're all centrally managed. The All Blacks cause is prioritised. Below that, the region's cause is prioritised. Below that, you have the, the, the provinces which still play domestically. In Wales, it's much more difficult because you've got these four independent businesses that opens up competition law, restraint of trade risks if um, the Welsh Rugby Union tries to block players. It's unlikely a player itself would sue the union because even if he won, um, he's probably kissing his career goodbye anyway for doing it. But there are risks with a an overseas club or a player agent complaining that their business is being um, harmed by this, by this rule. Um, England have done it, but... It's much easier for England because they've got such a huge player pool. Yeah. It's much harder to argue that that one player would definitely be in the England team, but for the rule. Whereas in Wales, it's a much narrower um, player pool. And if Lee Halfpenny or Jamie Roberts are not selected, you know, it's because they're at sort of Toulon or Harlequins. It's very hard to argue that it's for any other reason. So... Ideally, a national coach wants his players at home where he's got access, he's got control. But, you know, it's difficult. Complications. Go to France, the conditioning is way off um, test level. What Philippe Saint-Andre called, you know, diesels. (laughs) You know, they're big, huge men, physical, strong. You see a French rugby player these days, massive, but they they can't run to 30 yards but a break, some of them. And then you've got the... The English problem, where you've got um, protected payments from the English Rugby Football Union, they will not release players outside of the international window where the WRU plays additional fixtures, particularly in November, and suddenly George North or Luke Chartres um, might not be available. You were saying that the regions are independent businesses, but how dependent are they on the WRU for their survival? Totally. The independence is just, you know, it's almost an artificial construct. So a quarter of their income is, you know, comes from WRU payments. Um, but another quarter comes from um, TV money. And you've got to remember, that TV money is not tied to the super clubs. I mean, the Sky have been increasingly developing a relationship with the Irish Rugby Football Union so you know, their driving force really is sort of, you know, those November tests and June tests in Ireland, they televise that. So Sky are looking at the Irish Union. Um, the Welsh broadcaster BBC pays well by terrestrial standards, but their relationship is with the um, the BBC. And yeah. obviously um, the, the Welsh regions are dependent 
for both these streams on the WIU. So how independent is any supplier who's completely dependent upon um, one monopoly buyer for half his income? Yeah, it's a really tricky one, Mark. Um, and I also, I'd just like to challenge the, uh, the assumption that you made before that you believe the New Zealand model is the best model. Sorry, did you mean it's the re- best model for regional rugby or rugby in general? It's the best model for a small country. Mm, um, yeah, I don't England think and true. France, they're big countries. There's plenty of big TV markets, commercial sponsors. They can get away with a degree of inefficiency because they're the big backers, you know, sort of Nigel, Ray, um, Bruce Craig. Well, Johan Rupert is the real money behind Saracens, but there's big money there to cover losses. Small countries, you haven't got that wealth. You've got to squeeze everything out of what um, you've got. You can't have inefficiency over player wages. You've got to try and rig the market in your benefit. New Zealand do it. Ireland certainly do it. Scotland have tried to do it but haven't done it very well because they lost two of their four teams early on in the professional era. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's... You know, the the world divided into two camps, really. The countries that are big countries with money, England, France, and you could count Japan within that, went for these private sort of clubs, hobby horses, I sometimes say about them, where a benefactor, a consortium of benefactors could come in, owning the club was in some ways a tax-efficient way of pay, giving loans to his business and writing the loans off. In some instances, it was a tax-efficient way of sponsoring that business. It raised individual profiles. You could do it that way. Small countries, New Zealand, Ireland, have taken a... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Very different approach where it's got to be, everything's got to be controlled. Everything's got to be strategic to try and minimize any inefficiency. And you've got the global game half in one camp, half in the other, and you've got a system where it's got a foot in each camp, but uh, not really applying either model. And we've got, we've got central contracts, but not a central contract system with each structure. You've just got a series of, you know, random marquee, uh, marquee players um, that are just designed to keep them in Wales. But there's no, because normally central contracts, you contract everybody, you control the wage structure, you minimise the internal cost, you say this is what you're worth in Wales. If you don't like your valuation, you go and work to another country. You kiss goodbye to Test rugby, which ultimately is what most players at the top end want to be playing. But do, um, 
do you know what um, I feel really uncomfortable with though? Is when the all the WRU say we'll we'll offer you a market rate deal, and if you don't take the market rate deal or what we perceive to be the market rate, you can't play for Wales. You've only got a short career, and if Bath, who are only you know, what forty miles away from your house, are offering you fifty percent more, you should absolutely be able to go there and still play for Wales. And I, I don't think there should be any real controversy there particularly not from a player point of view when they've only got four years to win well again it's it's just it's just depends which culture you go through sort of what's very much the anglicized model at the moment is player agents have come in i think lord sugar calls it prune juicing where all this tv money comes in it's got to go somewhere and all the clubs end up doing is funneling that money to a a play, to, to a player and his agent. Mm. I think rugby rugby traditionally say, well, the values were, well, you should have a good income. Um, it should be well insured so yep. that if you're curtailed by injury, you'll get the money you would have had for the next five, ten years, whatever, anyway, under the insurance policy. But, it, you know, rugby should be, if you the top end of it, you should have a good income. But, you know, it's not the equivalent of winning the the lottery and living in luxury um, for the rest of your life. So the sport, like many embryonic professional sports, is caught between the two, the two philosophies. You know, sort of. I when I hear reports that you know, sort of, a Premiership footballer is on quarter of a million pounds a week. Right? I just don't think somebody should be on you know, um, ten times the the annual salary of a nurse in a week kicking a ball around mm, I don't know I mean so, if you've got a rare skill you've got a rare skill and you need to be compensated for it but on the other hand before I go on with that point do you know what the difference is between the salary caps between the premiership and the Welsh regions at the moment or the salary spend more importantly uh, it's, it's changing rapidly I, I don't keep an annual figure anymore because mm. the RFU one is certainly um, so the premiership PRL one is certainly um going up the gap is there but of course i think i'm always suspicious about salary caps we know the welsh regions one of the regions um the dragons don't tend to even spend up to their um permitted salary cap i think there's been some some you know sort of harsh words spoken there but that's just the nature of the funding but you know salary caps themselves are very difficult to police we saw what happened last last year where the allegations against Clubs shouldn't be names. I think Saracens was one. Bath um, was another. And, you know, what happens pretty much is when, you know, the tax revenue go calling on someone, a rich individual sends an army of lawyers to to, to grind them into submission and a confidential settlement take place. So I'm always suspicious about um, the enforcement of salary caps. I think it's almost hopeless unless you... You go all the way and call them full remuneration caps because, as we discussed earlier, you can always get round a salary cap. You know, sort of wives get jobs where you know um, they turn up three days a year and get paid a salary. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, there's always these w- ways around salary caps. So, um, you know, you you need people to buy into the culture, and when you've got independent businesses unregulated, where the where the union doesn't automatically get to see all their internal documents, it's much more difficult to enforce anyway. Yeah. It, it's, it's different in in countries where you know you've got regions like in New Zealand where they 
they half franchised out to provincial provinces to run and half franchised out to private individuals because because the the New Zealand Union ultimately controls everything. All the documents have got to come in past them so they can observe what's really going on. Um, you, you know, Saracens or Bath or any other clubs involved, they, you know, they're independent businesses and it takes us back. You know, the unions don't have police or um, MI5 powers and neither do, um, you know, the, the self-regulation governing body, in this case, Premier Rugby. So it's it's just a very grey area um, when you have independent businesses that don't have to account for every step to the governing body. Yeah, see, I, I tend to disagree with that view, which I think the salary cap in the English game is phenomenally successful. Nowhere near as um, strictly as enforced as it should be. If you're going to have a salary cap, you need to have... A... I'm not, I'm certain, oh. yeah. I'm not particularly having a go at the um, salary cap. I think it was a it was yeah. it was designed to keep the league competitive. In that sense, it's done that. Um, but obviously, the problem with the English game was is that commercial revenues haven't been increasing at the same rate as in France. And when that happens, the teams at the very top get very nervous, and they suddenly are thinking, well, you know. Toulon have bought these three new X spring Boxes. Mm. We want to match them. So I, the problem with salary caps is they work best if they're done at a hemisphere level rather than as a national wow. level. Because I mean, if you want a, a salary cap across across the Six Nations and a salary cap across Sanzar, you're at least doing a level playing field for the competition platforms subject to various you know enforcement issues we've discussed yeah i mean i think it's very difficult for wales to have a smaller salary cap than england which has a smaller salary cap in france Um, because if you use your if you spend your money wisely um those with the higher um salary caps should by definition have a stronger squad than those with a a lower salary cap it's not an easy one to work out you would say that Logic would dictate that, but there are a few things which which have been proved factually the opposite. So, for instance, what the salary cap has done, done in England is made sure that the clubs have got to spend their money because they've got money above the, the salary cap on other things, coaching in Saracens, oh, um, yeah. infrastructure, community outreach stuff, uh, stadiums, all the rest of it. Now, you look at France, who are spending more money, but they're getting a lot less for that money. I think the English game is tremendously efficient, and it's also it's also very 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 good at building the overall league. I don't think there's a more competitive domestic league in the world than the Premiership next year. It's going to be savage. Where the Premiership the... is good is in the sense that you've got a salary cap, and it keeps it generally level. I mean, I'm the you know, I don't think all of the teams are spending anywhere near to the salary cap. I mean, certainly Saracens, Bath, Northampton, Leicester, those sort of teams well, are possibly you, Quinns. So, I don't but, think you get to... But I'm not sure I'll be, I, you know, I, I see one of the periphery teams like Worcester winning the league next year. I can't quite see a team doing a Leicester City did in football. No, I can't but see Where that. I think it's good is that if you set a salary cap in a private sports club business... You go into the player age and saying, this is the total pot available. So within that total pot, we value your player at this level. That's what I think it helps the most in, in England to, to boost the English club game. Yeah. I, I think the biggest problem they've got is relegation. Because relegation, 
basically encourages all the behaviours that you don't want from clubs that are fighting for their survival. If you got rid of relegation, I think there'd be much more buy-in to uh, to the salary cap. Well, that, that's not, that's, not that's absolutely it. Because the moment the moment an English or a French team is dragged into a relegation fight in the Premiership, they lose all interest in Europe. Yeah. Because all of a sudden it becomes, we mustn't go down because the financial cost is hideous. So what you what I think what ultimately the Premiership clubs would have liked. I think there's about fourteen clubs that kind of own the P shares in the Premiership rugby. I think ideally they would have wanted a fourteen um, a fourteen team Premiership with all those teams um, ring-fenced. And, of course, that's much of the issue in Wales because whenever you have clubs, clubs come with meritocracy, promotion, relegation, because 14 clubs, by definition, don't represent everybody. Whereas New Zealand can say, there's these five regions, they represent everybody, they're new teams, you don't have to worry about prioritising one province over another. I say, and in Wales, if you want a north region, a south region, a west region, an east region, all the club fans would buy into that and you wouldn't have the problem over relegation promotion. Mm. But when the Welsh system has a, has a feel of, well, Blues are just Cardiff, the Dragons are just um, Newport, it brings out all the old sort of antagonisms in some of the, their old rival clubs saying, well, these clubs have been pampered and favoured for years. They get all the WRU money and it causes conflict where really if you start from a, fre- a blank sheet of paper and represent everybody on top of the existing system, um, you tend to have much more of a buy-in. Yeah, just let me ask you this then. Um, we've been quite negative on the Welsh region so far. Where do you see him in five years' time? And are there, is there, are there any glimmers of hope? It's, it's it's a it's a difficult one. I mean, looking at it at the sort of very simplistic, micro, I would call the micro level, what the economists would call it. You know, I think the Ospreys are generally um, in a good place. Um, their problem is not so much what's happened in rugby; it's that they've happened to have the misfortune of being alongside. You know, they the towns, the cities, football clubs, golden era. Mm. Swansea City all of a sudden going from, you know, rather than being in Division 3 at the Vetch, they've got Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal in town all the time. I think that is in some ways has disguised how far ahead the Ospreys have pulled to the others. The Dragons, well, the for sale sign is up at Rodney Parade. I think they've got a chief executive who realises they need to go regional. So if they can get, you know, a, a new investor, or pre- preferably sort of a, a consortium of investors where there's some and an out and out, you know, I own 100%, this is my bat and ball business sort of thing. Yeah. I think they go in the right direction. The Blues, I, mean, I don't know how they're going to mend relations with these Glamorgan Valleys. It's so toxic. I think the plan there must obviously be to take a long lease on Cardiff Arms Park, completely redevelop the ground, have hotels and stuff there, and try and repair their balance sheet that way. And as the, on the micro level, the fourth one, the Scarlets, well, obviously, you know, trying to put two professional teams in that sort of increasingly poor Talbot and Neath 
Clonechly, Conurbation, Town Swans, which is one commercial centre, was always a bad idea. There's a lot of money's gone into the Scarlets, um, both state and, in fairness, from private investors. You know, I think you know they really do try and spend on the team to get a momentum going. The issue there is ultimately, you know, whether they can generate. If you're spending heavily for success and it doesn't come, got a strong balance sheet or new money coming in, um, you're in trouble. On the macro level, what's happening in Europe, the problem for the Welsh regions is the growth of TV money in France, where the Qataris buy in, be in, a cent TV, you know, that's suddenly created a, du- a duopoly situation of bidding. I always joke, you know, sort of, it reminds me of the old lawyer's joke where one lawyer moved to a small town <laughs> and he had nothing to do. A second one moved in and they were both busy. Yeah, well, uh, fighting in England, um, BT are very much put um, the English clubs at the stable of defending their broadband market against Sky, and the P12 is kind of out on the periphery. And what happens at the 2018 TV renewal there is probably going to be the defining moment because. If TV revenues stay at 10, 12 million in Wales and they're 40 million a year in um, in England and approaching 100 million euros a year in France, well, the, you know, there are market forces operating and Wales is, is open because it's not running a full central contract system where, you know, um, the culture is you stay in Wales to play for Wales. So 2018, you know, summarises the pivotal year for Wales. So what is the answer then? Is it to kind of develop the Celtic League into something worthwhile watching? Because it's not something which I watch. It's not something I, I, I particularly enjoy until the playoffs. Or is it just to rip it up and start again? Yeah, um, well, it's a, it's a difficult one because um, if you were, I, I, if you could go back to 1995, I'm sorry to go through the history, but you know, you've got to show that sort of the missed options, you know, in Southern Hemisphere, they were really professionalism. They had Naspers lined up for TV in South Africa. They had Rupert Murdoch's Fox in Australia and Sky New Zealand. They had the contract with the players. They had the competition, Super Rugby. Off they went. In the Northern Hemisphere, it was totally inertia. You know, the unions were uh, were taken completely um, by surprise. I always remember the one story where sort of. Um, I think one of the Irish, if it's true or not, but I think one of the Irish representatives was um, was saying, you know, well, we only pay a little bit. And I think someone said, well, you know, you're either professional or you're not. You, you know, you're either pregnant or you're not. It's one or the other. Yeah. So yeah. the Northern Hemisphere <clears throat> left behind the curve. They didn't get together because in those days, you had the RFU had their four divisions. The Irish provinces were there in place essentially to move on. The, the, the Five Nations Union should have got together and set up a European equivalent of Super Rugby and put that to Murdoch as well as part of the quid pro quo for going open. Um, British and Irish leagues, clubs in Wales and England took over. Scotland and Ireland went through a union um, model. British Irish League didn't get um, sorted in 1998, 1999. We could discuss that for hours on our own. And I don't think our listeners would be particularly keen on that. The recriminations are still yeah. going. Um, so the English have got their own league, which suits them. It works for them. And you know whether they'll change their mind if you know the, the, the excess and funding in France goes up and up and up. 
who knows? But for the moment, the English are clearly not interested in the British Irish League. So the Pro 12 becomes the only show in town. Um, I don't think the Italians um, add much um, per se by their involvement in it. No, they've got to go. But obviously there are political issues there in relation to keeping them within the Six Nations forward. So you've got bad issues. Now there's talk of going to Spain. There's talk of going to North America. With these things, the devil is always in the detail. I mean, not many, not many American broadcasters are particularly interested in um, rugby. The one that I showed some interest, um, NBC, um, I think they've been signed up by the English clubs to show highlights of the Premier. That's right, they have. Rugby. So they're not going to be particularly interested um, in the Pro 12. So you've got to go to America mid-winter, where, you know, if you've been in Boston or New York in December or January, you know, you, know, you need a covered roof, essentially, to guarantee a fixture takes place. So there's all these, you know, in theory, fine. But again, it's the devil in the detail. If if you can get a big American broadcaster interested, that's good. Um, but also you've got the cost of setting up a new franchise and then saying to, the, saying to the Americans, well, you spend so much on your own franchise and then cross-subsidize us, the rest. So... You know, it looks it looks fine um, until you go into the um, the great um, details. Yeah. But uh, whether Celtic rugby can, uh, you know, manage to do anything, um, I don't know. And of course, the big issue is Sky because Sky came on board with the Pro Twelve in two thousand thirteen. I think around that time they were developing their relationship with the IRF, the, I, the IRFU, the Irish Union, mm-hmm. over um, the Heineken Cup. So they were. They were keen to keep that close. They were developing the relationship with showing Irish test matches outside the Six Nations. So Sky came on board. And, of course, within a year, you had the entire European sort of civil war taking off. The loss of the Heineken, the Heineken Cup, which had been their baby for many years. You had the Welsh clubs, well, the Welsh regions threatening an Anglo-Welsh with the, um, the English. So, you know, I one of the big questions of the, the Pro 12 is, you know, what does Sky think about it in terms of what's happened? Will they invest in it? Will they say, well, we'll continue as we are, but we're not putting any more money in, which would be disaster in itself? Or do we have the nuclear option where they say, well, it's so fair we were treated as the broadcaster by um, some of the parties involved in relation to our broadband war with BT? And, you know, to hell with a lot of you is is, is, is you know is, is the ultimate nightmare scenario. Well, We're out. Go back to terrestrial TV. Do you know what I, I think? Uh, and my listeners will will be surprised at this. I, I'm actually a little bit more uh, optimistic about the future. I think the loss of the Heineken Cup, although I didn't want it to go, uh, was actually a good thing because the Heineken Cup has been replaced by the Rugby Championship and means now that people have to take the Pro 12 seriously. We um, on our other show, Egg Chasers used to, and particularly myself, used to lay into the Pro 12 each and every week because you never used to see, see the internationals. The clubs didn't take it seriously. Why should we? The Pro 12 now, for all its weaknesses, and there are substantial weaknesses, is starting to look more and more like a professional league each and every year. Now, the broadband war, it's just going to be a case of, well, if BT are doing well with the Aviva Premiership, and they are, they have fantastic coverage, if Sky needs to strike back, the Pro 12 is the perfect stalking horse. 
And I've got a feeling that Sky aren't going anywhere because that Champions Cup, providing it is divvied out equally, they're always going to want the Pro 12. Uh, so for that reason, they might be in better shape than we realise. I would certainly hope that's the position. In fairness to Sky, um, they don't tend to act emotionally. I mean, they, are, they do tend to say, well, business is the bottom line. Um, where are we? Um, you know, the, at the moment, you've got this, you know, double-sided coverage of um, the European Champions Cup where, you know, commercially it hasn't really taken off. I mean, the only, the only real big rise in income from the... Um, the previous Heineken Cup is that you had these two British TV um, companies battling against each other. You know, Canal Plus in France didn't bother really with the um, the new Champions Cup. They just concentrated on, on the top fourteen. So, you know, BN got the Champions Cup below the reserve price for the tender. Um, again, lead sponsorships, they haven't really come in. You started off with Heineken paying a fraction of what they used to pay to be the title holders of the Heineken Cup. I think Turkish Airlines are on board as well. Mm. The real question, as you allude to, is how does Sky see the Pro 12 in relation to the bigger picture? And what I mean by the bigger picture is, you know, their relationship with the IRFU, their relationship in relation to the Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup. So their relationship with the general TV coverage around this Southern Hemisphere dominance. The question for Sky is, you know, if you cut out the emotion, any frustration over the way certain stakeholders behaved, his question is, where does it fit in with the stable? And the hope has got to be, as you say, if they say, well, you know, we can get that, we can get the, um, the Pro 12 for less, far less than what BT are paying for the Premiership, and we can make something of it. Because as you say, the downside for losing the Heineken Cup for the Celtic Nations was their reduced slice of the pie. Mm. The upside, as you again alluded to, is by having less places in the top echelon, the top table of the Champions Cup, all of a sudden the you know, the, the Champions Cup has made the, the Pro 12 very important because, as you know, of the Welsh regions, only one, the Scarlets, has qualified. And if it's up to me, the Scarlets wouldn't have qualified. In my mind, the best teams in the league should go and it shouldn't be based on what nationality uh, that you happen to be. Again, that's that's always the, always the problem with the Pro 12. It's a supranational test development yeah. league with other agenda. So, you, yes, you want a, a league that's competitive in itself, but you know people are also thinking. Whereas, you know, the big money is the Six Nations, and how competitive will Italy be if they haven't got any teams at all in the Champions League? So that was the thinking. My own view was. We've probably got to the stage you know, where if the Pro 12 collectively has got six or seven places, you pick the top six, seven teams. Because what happens is if you put the Italian team into a division or a pool, as they should say, that pool is likely going to be warped in the sense that because a couple of teams thrash the Italian side, they get they get the winner, but the best runner up in one of the best runners up invariably will come from the pool that has an Italian team with on presently are just whipping boys. Yeah, the Italian team should be dispensed of and put into you know French pro. D1 I've always I've always felt that sort of developing rugby in Italy should be 
an FFR, the French Rugby Federation, exactly right. it'd be their responsibility. But obviously, they've lost complete commercial control of their game in France. And the, the, the French club owners in Toulon or you know Montpellier or Toulouse, they don't want they don't want the Italian teams in the top fourteen. Well, so, uh, the, the, the Italian teams have no place anywhere near the top fourteen. They'd have to go into the league yeah. league below, would be my guess. And or, again, you take this back to them as well. You know, the development project. You know, you know, if if the Italians fall away completely, do we go back to a five nations? Do we have promotion relegation? Do we do we try bringing Georgia up on the basis that Argentina has gone with the southern hemisphere? That's the route they chose, and they're happy. Yeah. Do, do you know what I, mean? I never get though? I, I never get the talk about Georgia coming into the Five Nations or the Six Nations or whatever it may be. And to a large extent, I don't get the all the chat about why we need the Italians here either. The Six Nations or the Five Nations works because of historic rivalries. Now, if you just throw a new team in there without any historic rivalries, you basically just dampen, dampen the product. I think Italy would be far better off having competitive matches every year against Georgia, against... Um, Romania, maybe a Russian team, maybe somebody else, and make it get their own. That that's the only way that they'll, that they'll ever prosper. Even now, I don't really bother with Wales, Italy. It, it feels like it's a it's a weekend off, a, a bye week. I, I have considerable sympathy. I think the pro, I think the Italians are clearly the wrong fit for the Pro Twelve. Um, as regards the Six Nations, I don't think they they add much value, but. Clearly, there's politics there at a high union um, level, and we are where we are. And I don't see the Italians wanting to to walk away from it without a fight, because obviously they're now dining at the top table. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of think you need to develop your own rivalries. I think it's Romania, Georgia this year had fifty thousand people watching in watching in Tbilisi. Now, you take the Georgians away from that and put them into the Six Nations because they had a good World Cup. I understand that you think you're doing the right thing, but actually all you're doing is depriving Romanian fans from their biggest game of the year. Yep, again, I mean, you know, and obviously with Georgia, um, it all looks fine on paper, but, you know, there's, you know, there's serious, you know, political risk there because I think last time I looked at Georgia, there was two enclaves there where the Russian army were, were involved and they've been de- declarations of um, you know, independence. So, exactly. you know, you've got to think these things through carefully. Yeah. Going forward, then, if you were to give me a overall prediction on the Welsh regions and, and the Heineken Cup, what would it be? On the Heineken Cup, sorry, no, the European Champions Cup. Cup, sorry, the Champions Cup, yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. I mean, we've got three of them in the plate competition. So the Challenge Cup, you know, it may well be that the Ospreys on the Blues in particular could mount something there. I think the Dragons have had two good seasons there already, so. I don't think they'll be up for it um, this season, but I think the Ospreys may well target that depending on their commitments elsewhere. The Champions Cup this season, well, you know, I think I think the Scarlets have drawn Sale, Toulon, and Saracens. So <laughs> Good luck. clearly, not many people are going to be betting on them getting out of the pool. Hopefully, they'll at least beat Sale at home. They won't not. beat Sale. They're not beating Sale. So uh, I just can't like see it. You know, but I don't want to get into this situation debate where all these North Walians prefer Sale because they've been ignored <laughs> by South Wales. But I think, you know, if Scarlets don't beat Sale at home, I think the prediction will be in 2017-18, um, sorry, 2016-17, they'll fail to, a Welsh region will fail to win any match in the top tier because 
three in the bottom tier, and the Scarlets have drawn an absolutely hideous pool. Yeah, it's going to be very tough for Scarlets next year. Yeah. Um, and they've got the backs, don't get me back division. What? You know, they have Gareth Davis, you know, Patchell, Jonathan Davis. They've got a couple of good Kiwis coming. I think McNichols coming from the Crusaders. Yeah, good player, good player. Well, Scott Williams at centre, so they, they've got the backs, but... Uh, you know, in, in the Europe, the Welsh teams usually get found out at forwards. That's what, other than the Ospreys, who can, at one point could get out of the pool, if not further, the Welsh teams have frequently struggled um, in the last five, six years um, in the forward battle. And, you know, I think last year, the Scarlet's coach, um, who's an excellent Kiwi guy, Wayne Pivak, I think he just basically gave up on Europe and just concentrated all his efforts on the Pro 12 and getting into Europe again. I'd say the Scarlets are the the best of the Welsh regions as it stands, particularly the way that, the way that they play the game. What do you make of Rhys Pratchell? Because I've never really watched him play for any extended period of time. Is he going to be the difference maker that everyone thinks? I think he certainly has the potential. I mean, I don't know many Blues fans who are particularly pleased to see him go. Um, you know, I, I think that you know there's a good chance there that he might get them clicking. Um, I think I'd watch the Ospreys this season and getting good vibes from um, that their preseason is going well and things are connecting. Um, when the Ospreys get on a run, um, they can be um, um, they can be very effective. So um, I wouldn't write them off. Mm-hmm. Um, the current Blues coach has managed to change the culture there and get more life out of them. So even despite the um, the departure of Patchell, I think you know if the Blues can avoid injuries and get going, you know if they can get teams will not be too keen used to playing on grass mm-hmm. and into that artificial pitch at the Arms Park. So again, sort of the, all either of those three teams could get ahead of steam and get going. I mean, I wouldn't say all three. But one or two may cl- may click and connect. I think the Dragons are in for a hard season this year simply because there's no money to spend on the squad. Yeah, it's a real shame that it almost feels like if you're not going to do it properly, just just don't do it. I mean, they yeah. they need to reform the whole club. Uh, you know, wh- where they play, how it looks, the amount of money money they spend. I don't think the Dragons have got a single part of that franchise right or that region right. Oh, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I think there's people in the right place now thinking, right, we have to forget this super club thing. We have to go full on Gwent, just get it all sorted. But the moment they're in limbo because um, the, they're for sale, but no consortium has come in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that means they're, you know, in, in limbo land. We know the chief executive wants to go regional. But, you know, a new guy could come in with a clean sweep and say, you know, this is my bat and ball now, or I want to appoint my own chief executive because I've just bought you and I want to clear out of the old yeah. regime. So, you know, they're in limbo. Some of the Newport fans are suspicious that he wants to go regional. Most regional fans are still wary because they think, well, if I engage with them, a new guy comes in and says, right, I want the Newport Black and Amber Super Club. Um, again, you know, so People invested so capital then and have to backtrack. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, last thing before um, before we wrap this up, why do you suspect that we haven't produced any good Welsh coaches over the last, well, maybe five, ten years? Where are all the Welsh coaches? 
I think there's plenty of Welsh cultures around some of the tier two nations. I think what the problem is in Wales is, again, it goes back to this super club thing, is because we don't, um, we don't start with a fresh, with new identities, sort of coaches get associated with sort of ancient clubs. And you get the mentality, well, we're Cardiff, we don't want a Newport coach and vice versa, or we're the Ospreys, we don't want a Scarlet's coach, and players just, coaches just end up going. I mean, I think Dar Young has done a decent job at Wasps, I think, but obviously yes, he's, done that's a, fair. he's done a checkbook there. And I think what the WIU tends to prefer is just to bring in a Kiwi from a superior structure system and just say, well, you're used to doing things better than this. Um, do what you can. They they paid an awful lot of money for um, Graham Henry. Um, he brought in Steve Hansen as his successor with Wales, just as he did as his later as his successor with the All Blacks. Warren Gatlin was the next one to come in. He had more experience of um, Northern Hemisphere rugby because his coaching career, you know, Ireland Wasps. You know, essentially. As a coach, he's the product of the Northern Hemisphere, but ultimately he's a product of, you know, the Waikato. So, again, he he thinks in New Zealand Kiwi terms, no messing around. And the reality is Gatland is the coach until 2019. And I will be surprised if the next Welsh coach um, doesn't come from a um, from a New Zealand franchise because they've got no baggage. Yeah, they, they come in with a clean sheet. They're used to success. Um, they don't see some of the politics. Some of the politics they will see, but they can turn a blind eye without people um, being suspicious. Yeah. So you know that's they come comes with baggage. The moment you pick a Mike Ruddock or a the Lynn Howells or a Nigel Davis or a Di Young or a Rob Howley even, you know, they they bring all their Welsh parochial baggage with them, and people are out to get them from the outset. Now we see a lot of Welsh fans don't like Warren Gatland because they see him as part of the triumvirate of sort of David Pickering, Roger Lewis, Warren Gatland. You know, rightly or wrongly, first you think it's silly, but that's where we are. But the moment a Welsh coach comes in, you have an awful lot of baggage on top of that. So in our place like Ireland, Scotland, Wales, it's just easier to get out the checkbook and bring a guy in from um, New Zealand. Yeah, I think it's a real shame. And I think the one thing everyone overlooks when they look at the All Blacks, they all give it a lot of credit to Steve Hansen. I've been critical about Steve Hansen, which sounds perverse given his record. But all those players that he brings in have been developed by exceptional teams of coaches in the regions, exceptional New Zealand um, coaching teams within the region. We oh, absolutely! I mean, we don't have that in Wales. At, they, they just they just don't look, exist. Yeah, but you look in look at New Zealand. You go down to the Highlanders. Well, you know, Jamie Joseph and Tony Brown have done a great job yeah. there. The Crusaders. Well, they've been dominating Super Rugby for fifteen, twenty years. You yeah. know, there's no greater rugby system in terms of brain power than the Crusaders Canterbury. You know, they've had Wayne Smith, Robbie Deans, Todd Blackadder. Um, to get some of the North Island franchises, you've had Dave Rennie at um, the Chiefs. These are top minds, but the point I make is it's an integrated system. The coaches are brought up at every level um, as part of one integrated whole, whereas in Wales, although the WRU through participation agreements has gradually extended its reach into the regions, you know, 
it's still all a bit disjointed. There's not a coaching pathway or a fan pathway. All that works in Wales is a player development pathway. I completely agree. And I reckon the next coach of Wales is going to be Joseph or it's going to be the fella from Waikato whose name we just said. I can't remember his name. Dave Rennie. Dave Rennie. Rennie. I think think Jamie Joseph's gone to Japan, but he's there till 2019. Has he really? Has he left the Highlanders? Yep, he's gone for the. He leaves the Highlanders now, and he's taken the Japan job in to replace um, Eddie Jones. So he's there till twenty nineteen. When does Warren Gatland's um, contract um, run out? Twenty nineteen. So my suspicion is they will bring them in. Um, yes, they've renewed the contracts of Howley and the various other guys, but that's up till twenty nineteen. They probably had to do that, thinking that Gatland on a balance of probabilities, is going to get the Lions job, especially with Eddie Jones disinterested. So they weren't going to change the Welsh assistant coaches the year Gatland goes on sabbatical. Mm. So he's got his team in place until 2019. But in come, come the Six Nations 2020, I'd be very surprised if um, the WRU, because the two guys running that organisation now, um, Gareth Davis and Martin Wood, very switched on guys. Mm. Davis has got an empathy for the game, having played it at the highest level. I don't know if you've met Martin Phillips, but no, he, he comes from a background in retail, so he's used to selling a product. And you know, yeah, you know, that's a perfect environment for Wales because it's always been such a producer-driven system. Where apart from the Welsh team itself, you're almost saying to the fans, "This is what you've got. Come and um, come and support it." Whereas Phillips comes from a, a lifetime career of, well, you know, I build a product that people want to buy. Yeah, yeah. And that might come as a shock for some of the um, the regional owners, but we are where we are on a contract until 2020. But if I give my final comments, I would say 2018 is the pivotal year in Welsh rugby because that's when the Pro, the pro 12... TV contracts up for renewal and something dramatic needs to happen to bridge the gap with other leagues and it's also two years out from the renewal of the overall system and you know the trouble with rugby it's stuck apart from the Ospreys there's been no evolution since 2003 and unless it evolves it'll just eventually go into decline and it'll death by a thousand cuts and nobody wants that no absolutely not Gary thank you so much for joining me on the Rugby Dungeon that is comfortably the most (laughs) insightful interview that I've had so far absolutely tremendous you're welcome back anytime before you go remind us where we can find your blog on Twitter and uh, and your webpage please the the Viet Gwent um, it's all there I started off by Last season, looking at the big structural issues on the blog, it's the Viet Gwent WordPress. Um, on Twitter, um, it's Powell at the Viet Gwent. But the blog is the place to go. I spent last season looking at the big structural systemic issues. Come Over the next season, I'll be looking at the businesses and the financial models one at a time. So it'll be more, it'll more detailed, but it's all there. And uh, please, I just invite people to take a look and... Uh, get a feel for where Welsh rugby is, where mistakes have been made, how we correct them, how we go forward, and we have a system everybody can buy into. Fantastic. Well, when you complete the next section of the blog on financials, we'll have you back and you can go through it with all of our listeners again. Brilliant. Good night. Cheers, Gary. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 